0: Good morning and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to meet with you today and to share God's word. I've been praying for the church and the body of Christ and the world that we're living in, and thank thank the Lord that we have rest in Jesus. We're gonna be in James chapter two, if you want to turn there. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us all, that you are the awesome God, the creator of all things. You are the one to whom we look, the one in whom we rest, the one that gives us perfect peace, forgiveness, and everlasting life. And thank you for the miracles you do every day. Thank you for the opportunity we have to read your word and to have fellowship together and pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen, encourage, equip, and comfort us and use us, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I love about God's Word is how it tells us what we need to hear, whether we think we need to hear it or not. And it cuts through the nonsense. There's no; It doesn't pull any punches. God's Word, it goes straight to the heart. It makes demands on us that we're wise to heed. So many of the things that we, we do involve ourselves with do not really make demands of us, like when you read a book of fiction or watch a show on TV. It's, it's not, there's no encouragement for you to be changing, for you to be different or more like the Lord. Um, and so we come to God's Word in a different way, knowing it's the, our Father speaking to us. And there's so many good examples in it of uh, how to live and insights into humanity. There's one time where Ahab, the king, inquired of his 400 prophets whether they should go up to battle against Syria, and they all agreed, go up, for the Lord will deliver it into your hand. Now, Ahab was not interested in hearing from God. He aligned himself with these prophets who were really yes-men. They said things that he wanted to hear. King Jehoshaphat, who was with him, he recognized that was the case, that these prophets were not of God, and he said, is there yet a prophet of God that we can speak to today, and and Ahab says, yeah, there's one, but I hate him, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, because he always prophesies evil concerning me. And he says, don't let the king say that. And so they brought him, and Ahab, he, he discriminated against Micaiah and only inquired him, of him because King Jehoshaphat requested it. And this passage in 1 Kings 22, it shows us that we naturally prefer and seek the counsel of people that we already agree with, and say what we want to hear. And from childhood, we grow up learning to discern between shades of color and telling which animal is which, or the calls of different birds, who is tall or short, and what looks pretty or ugly, who is young and old, and those, those things may change as we get older. But countless times throughout the day, we're forced to make judgments. We make judgment calls all the time according to how we feel, what we see, according to our experience. And in spiritual matters, we've taken positions that are refined over time according to personal convictions and judgments that we hold to. And if you hold any position, know that the risk exists. You can sin by looking down on others who hold a different view than you. We might be like Ahab's prophets. They were happy to be yes men because of their... Um, association with the king. They had this privileged role. We might be like Ahab, looking for people that will say the things we want to hear And, and hating Micaiah, who was actually a man of God. Ahab knew it, but he wasn't interested in hearing from God. And being like Micaiah, who was bold to speak even to people that didn't want to hear, there's no debate that we all make judgments. The question is, do we practice righteous judgment? More importantly, In our judgment, what place do we have for mercy? And that's what we're going to be talking about in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. "'My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of God, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, "'You sit here in a good place.'" And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The passage is preceded by James addressing these, the 12 tribes of Israel, believers that were scattered throughout the world. And he reminds them, he had just been reminding them that true faith in God results in personal purity. Purity. Having placed our faith in Christ as his disciples, we're to follow and to heed him. And one of the things that we're to recognize and repent of in our lives is partiality. He says, don't have faith in God with partiality. And to be partial, it means to have favoritism, to means being biased against a group or towards another group or a person. It's important that judges are impartial with their decisions, that they don't make their um, judgments based upon the ethnicity of the person standing there or the, their age or something. They, they need to look at the law and then look at the case presented to them and be impartial. That's why justice is shown with the scales, with the blindfold on, that idea that we're going to approach this and, and weigh it according to law, not according to what we can see or w- apart from all personal bias. Webster said, self-love will make men partial to themselves and friends. We've all witnessed partiality. We've all, to a degree, been corrupted by partiality. That's influenced the way that we've seen others. We have all condemned others when we were guilty of doing the same thing. So none of us are innocent in this matter. And the Bible is totally clear that God is not partial. He shows no partiality. In Romans 2.11, it says, for there is no partiality with God. Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Some believers might assume God's like them, that he shows partiality to his children, some sort of nepotism. We've seen parents whose kids, to the, in their eyes, could do no wrong, and then we've seen other parents who were exceedingly harsh on their own children while being more lenient with others. And these extremes are contrary to the character of God who shows no partiality. And we would be surprised how much we can be partial, how much partiality can creep in and affect the way that we see things and our views of others. Now, to make a distinction, to note a difference is fine, but to show partiality based upon that, that's where the sin comes in. A good example of this, of how, how, I guess, insidious it is, how it can creep in and be there until God opens our eyes to see it, is in the case of Peter and Cornelius. God directed Cornelius to seek out Peter. Now, Cornelius was a devout man. He followed the law of the Jews. He's a, he was a Gentile, though. He was a centurion um, of the Italian regiment and he sent messengers to Joppa to ask Peter to visit him in Caesarea. Now, Peter had been prepared by God for this. He had received a vision where God said, what I have cleansed, you shall not call common or unclean. And then when there was the knock on the door and the messengers showed up, the Holy Spirit said to Peter, go with these men, doubting nothing. Like, unless Peter had heard that word from the Lord and seen that vision to prepare him, he would not have gone with them. He would not have received them into his house. But Peter and the Jews, they were obedient to God's command and they went to Caesarea and they arrived at a gathering of Gentiles where Cornelius had gathered together family members and people who wanted to hear the message from the Lord in Acts 10, and 35. It says, then Peter opens his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Peter, previously, he believed the Jews were clean who kept the law. Gentiles were unclean. But God corrected him and said, no, I have cleansed them, and you should not call them unclean. You should not view them as, oh, Gentile, unclean. Put them in that unclean box because they're a Gentile. Peter did not go, again, to Caesarea out of the goodness of his heart but because God told him to. He realized God does not show partiality. Here's a man of the Italian regiment whom God has cleansed. He has been accepted by God because, it says, he feared God and did righteously. This was a huge revelation to Peter. But what would happen next was even more amazing. In verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. One moment, it's pretty cool, right? Peter's like, I now realize God does not show partiality. But then he's astonished that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit just like they had on the day of Pentecost. And the amazement of the Jews, it shows for all their learning, realizing that they had been cleansed, they continued to view Jews as favored over Gentiles by God. And they, they were just shocked that the Holy Spirit actually came upon the Gentiles too. They kind of thought it was their own special thing, but uh, there were layers of partiality they had been showing, and God pulled that. He opened their eyes to see it. He revealed to them their need to change. Jesus has come, and he broke down that middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile to make of the two one body, the church. And this is still something we need to learn in the church today. When I grew up as a kid, I heard I had a friend who visited a church, and he, he had his own unique style of dress, you know, a cowboy hat and a trench coat, and he was refused entry to the church because he wasn't wearing a proper suit. I was once asked my age by a congregant who could not go to a church who had a pastor that was younger. Um, there was... And I can say for myself, I have shown partiality by dismissing parenting advice from believers who didn't have kids because I was biased thinking, oh, well, they don't have kids. What could they know about it? Rather than listening to them and going to the scripture and weighing their words against what the Bible says and like, well, is there some value to what they're saying? Is it biblical? Is it righteous and scriptural? Judgments that jump to conclusions based upon the appearance or the age or the role in a church, gifting or education, those are presumptuous. They can be sinful. And James knows because his readers will likely deny that they show partiality at all. I'm not partial. Because they believed in the equality of people before God and they were accepting and they were inclusive. James gives them an example of how the rich and the poor were treated differently in their assembly, in their synagogues. That's the word that's used there. James says, if a rich man comes into your synagogue, into your assembly, you notice his gold rings. You can see what he's wearing. You see he's wearing designer clothes, and you give him a better spot than the poor beggar who comes in, who smells. And so you put him in the back. You don't give him a seat at all. Notice he doesn't say if, he says when. When? This is happening guys and he calls them out. We see this also happening in Genesis 24:31. Laban, he noticed when Rebekah came with this visitor, he noticed the gold things that he had given her. And he noticed that gold before he invited him inside and said, "Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? We're ready for you to come in." Now, if the man was a beggar and he had given her nothing, he he probably wouldn't have cared at all to invite him inside because what could he offer him? What could he receive from him? James says, when we treat people differently because of their wealth, appearance, their social status, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We can sinfully put people into categories that should not exist and value those who we believe we can benefit from. Remember going to a steakhouse years ago and it was a comical situation uh, with Laura in the States. It was novel to walk in and see a table full of nuns wearing their habits. I mean, I had only seen that on TV or a movie. And we had always received good service at this restaurant. But on this particular day, we happened to be seated near that table and our server was running ragged, just trying to serve them, and he kind of forgot about us the whole time. And at one point, he apologized. He's like, sorry, guys, it's really busy today. I just have this opportunity to earn some points with with God, so I just have to do that. Uh, So I apologize. It was was comical, but um, the rich, the poor, it should not distract us from our tendency, so don't let, that ex, don't let the example confuse you or get you off track, where you might not make a distinction based upon the car someone's driving or the clothes they're wearing or um, how expensive their tastes are. But in some other ways, yes, you do show partiality because we all do. And that's why James is bothering to bring this up. He's going to, throughout this letter, point out many things common to man That is an issue God wants to deal with in our own lives. He wants us to change, to recognize you are being partial, and it's sin. We can esteem some more and others less because of their views, or their opinions, their stances. And we can feel obligated to help someone because they've helped us. And that overwhelming sense of duty, it exposes our lack of love. And that's another key point, is that when we're walking in love, we will not show partiality. Because it's love that's uh, moving us and governing our actions rather than what we see. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? In verse 1, James addressed his readers as brethren, in verse 5, my beloved brethren. See, he's softening his tone. He, He is only being gentle and kind in his motive in sharing these things. He asks, why would they give preference to a rich man when God gives the riches of the kingdom of God to the poorest of the poor who trust him? Should we reject the one who God has accepted? The one who's poor and of low social standing can be rich beyond reckoning through faith in God. You can go online, you can check the net worth of celebrities or politicians, but your privileged status as a child of God, that's beyond price, that's beyond measurement. And we have all in Christ. The riches of the wealthy, they can be a hindrance to people coming to Christ or relying upon him totally. So if God chooses the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of God's kingdom, we should not be partial against them. Jesus called out, excuse me, James, he called out believers for treating the poor shamefully uh, by catering to the rich in the synagogue, by excluding the poor. Remember, after coming to salvation, the Jews continued to go to temple. The apostles went up to the temple for regular prayer. Uh, They met house to house as well during their missionary journeys. Paul and Barnabas and Silas made it a practice to go and visit the local synagogue of every place they went and there proclaimed the gospel. So they were to give everyone an opportunity to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. They weren't to seek out the wealthy because all the good they could do to the church, believing that riches were a better contribution than the richness of faith and love and obedience to God. Like those are the true riches that we should admire and value. James pointed out that it was the rich who used their means to oppress them, to drag them before the courts, to take legal action against them. But the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. We see that the very, very rich Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, received Christ joyfully. And so being... A rich person, you're not excluded from the kingdom of God. Um, but the rich, he's making the point that they were more apt to blaspheme God because they didn't believe they needed him. They did not fear him because they trusted in uncertain riches. It's like they can speak as a judge with authority in contrast to a guilty man who's begging for mercy because his life is hanging by a thread. Let's be done with the thought that financial prosperity means you're doing something right. Have you ever heard that? You see someone driving in a car in a position, well, you must be doing something right. He must be doing something right. That has nothing to do with anything. If that's the case, then Jesus would be excluded from that blessing. People would look at him and say, what is he doing right? He doesn't seem very blessed by God because he wasn't born in a family cottage, a uh, a holiday home in Bethlehem. He was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Later in life, he did not have a place to lay his head that he could call his own. Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, he he received food from a child, from a boy, and he fed them with that food. He borrowed Peter's boat. Uh, When he was addressed and asked, hey, have you paid the temple tax? It was a half shekel that he didn't have on him at the time, and Peter had to go fishing to get it. He used the upper room. He he asked to use it, and he was gifted that, and he was gifted a tomb as well. He didn't have a tomb carved out of the rock. It was Joseph of Arimathea who gave him that. It's no sin to be rich, but it's a sin to show partiality to the rich or against the poor. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, it says this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Instead of being proud in your wealth or trusting in money which is yours today and gone tomorrow, trust God. Be generous as he's generous. He's given us all things that we possess and eternal life. Doing good, being generous with what we once hoarded or the thing that we w- was our goal, we wanted to be wealthy, to be free to share that with others, that shows that faith in Christ is real, that he's changing you, that your affections are not on things of this world anymore, but upon him, upon doing the things that please him. And these are the changes we ought to embrace in our walk with Christ. James 2 verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James says, it's good to keep the royal law of scripture. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. When Jesus was asked what the great command of the law was, he quoted from Leviticus 19, 18. This is what the king of kings said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There were likely many who said they followed this law, that they did love God with their heart, that they did love their neighbor as themselves. And James is like, well, that's a good start. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. It's unloving to show partiality, and that's why it's a sin. It's completely contrary to the character of God and his love. If you're caring for that person, whether it's a family member or not, because they're loaded, you're showing partiality. If you neglect the care of family or the poor because uh, they have nothing to offer you, you show partiality. The Jews understood the whole law needed to be kept. It wasn't something you can pick and choose. Well, I like the first eight commandments, but the ninth and tenth, I'm not really sure on those. So, That's not part of my philosophy or the way I live. No, if you're going to keep the law, you have to keep the whole law. There were many positive commands of the law and many negative ones, ones to avoid, such as eating, right? The things they would eat. You you could not be keeping the law to to eat clean animals if you also ate an unclean animal. Like you had to avoid the unclean and eat the clean. And a clean animal, it needed to be prepared in a particular way. It would not be okay to sit down to the Passover meal, having the lamb prepared, but then to eat it raw. Yes, you have to choose a lamb for the meal. It couldn't be some other animal. It was a specific animal, and it needed to be prepared in a certain way. So you would be breaking the law to eat it raw. It needed to be cooked. And James is saying, the God who said, do not commit adultery, he also said, do not murder. So you will not be commended for not committing adultery if you murder someone, because the same God gave you both commands. So you're a lawbreaker. You have broke the law. And when you break part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. And being partial, that's one of the inconsistencies in the lives of believers that James is targeting here. Again, it's the thing that we don't think we have a problem with. It's the thing that we, what, that's an issue for me? Maybe for them. Oh, I've seen it in others, but not in me, surely. Well, God knows. Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 34, "'A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you love one another. All the law and the prophets, they hang upon the love of God and loving others.'" And it's only by God's perfect love the law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will not put any other gods before him. If we love God and see him as supreme, we will be free from all idolatry. You see where I'm going with this? The third commandment is do not take the name of the Lord in vain. If you love the Lord, why would you use his name in a blasphemous way? You would use it in praise and worship and thanksgiving to him. A man who loves God is going to love others, not kill them. He will not commit adultery with their wives. He will not steal their things. They'll be thankful with what they've received without covetousness of what others have received. To love as God loves, we first must be born again. We must trust in him because this kind of love is not of man. It's the love of God, and it's love that passes understanding. So we must confess and repent of our self-love and our partiality as sin that keeps us from obeying our Savior who loves us with that everlasting, sacrificial love that we see displayed on Calvary when Jesus died for sinners. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, through 7, where we, d- we see a description of God's love that's without partiality. It says this in 1 Corinthians 13 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things endures all things. If we were perfectly loving, we would be impartial, but because we are not always perfectly loving, we are given to partiality. I mean, think about it. How many times have you been impatient? How many times have you been envious of others? Have you ever sought credit or recognition for the work that you did? It says that love is not proud, rude, or self-seeking. Have we ever been proud, rude, or self-seeking? It says, love is not provoked. What does it take to stir you up? Is there something that lights a fire under you that really gets your goat? What about suspicion? Are you ever suspicious of others? It says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but in the truth. I like what the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says of bearing all things. I love bears all things. Literally said of holding fast like a watertight vessel so the charitable man contains himself in silence from giving vent to what selfishness would prompt under personal hardship. Do we ever read of Jesus venting to his disciples about all that was wrong with the government, the religious leaders, how the synagogues were run? Uh, the culture, or the oppressive laws, do we ever see him doing that? No, we don't. Love believes, hopes endures. Having abolished the law as a means of righteousness, we're called by faith in Christ to love one another as he loves us. His love is to govern our thoughts, our actions, and we must give account of ourselves to God. It says that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Loving one another, it's it's not a feeling. It's something we're enabled to do because who God is, what he has done for us, and how he works through us. This is his will, that we would love one another. Continuing in James 2, verse 12 so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now that we know that partiality is a sin, hopefully that has come through from what James is saying, we should speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Love, of course, is more than kind words. It's more than notes and letters and chocolates. It's action taken for the good of others in God's glory. Freely, God has loved us. He's given us grace through the gospel, and we're to love others freely as well. So we, and we love him because he first loved us. So our love is a response to his love, and we show that love to others. And the question is, have we done unto, Christ, unto others what Jesus has done for us? Because of our guilt, God has the right to condemn and reject us all forever. We have nothing to offer him in our flesh but sin. He loved us. He freely redeemed us by his grace. It's that standard, not by the law of Moses, that judges us. James explains this, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. And this is really a commonly misunderstood concept, that of judging. To judge is to make a judgment or or a decision, really, is to decide something. And so every day we're making a decision. We're making a judgment about what we should eat for dinner, when we should go to bed, if we should go get tested for COVID or not, right? That's a judgment call. You need to decide based upon the evidence what you're going to do. But judging, when you say you're judging me, it's usually looking down on or a feeling of condemnation because someone doesn't agree with you. But the truth is, God has made many judgments in his word. We don't have to wonder because he's told us what sin, like he said, adultery is sin, murder is sin, showing partiality is sin. So that should be settled that those are indeed sin. And people who are quick to say, well, don't judge me, the Bible prohibits that. uh, Don't look at these verses like Matthew 7, 1 and 2 in context where Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judging yourself and judging others is not in itself sin, but how and why we're judging matters. We're in no position to judge others until we have first judged ourselves, repented, aligned ourselves with the teaching of God's Word in following His Spirit, Jesus once was confronted by Jews after he had healed a man on the Sabbath day and he was condemned or judged to be a Sabbath breaker. And he pointed out their hypocrisy in condemning him for doing God's will while they made exceptions to the Sabbath day rules that they accepted by tradition. Jesus said this in John 7 verse 22. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And that last bit is key. Judging according to appearance leads to error, but judging with righteous judgment is wise and what Jesus commands us to do. He says, you should be judging, but righteously not with partiality, not without love, and without mercy. This is a case where we will be made to sleep in the bed we make. A judgment according to the letter of the law will be judged without mercy. But if we judge and include mercy in our judgments, well, then we will be shown mercy by God. God is completely just. He's also infinitely merciful. We are neither of these things. It's good for us to, to know that. We are not perfectly just and we are not perfectly merciful at all. But God exalts mercy over judgment. I think a lot of, a lot of us, that's counterintuitive. We think, well, well, justice, judgment, that's the main thing. How can, how can those two go together at all? Numbers 14, 18, it says that being merciful is a defining characteristic of God's Uh, being. So what's mercy? I found a great definition in the Webster's 1828 dictionary. I'll just read it for you. That benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves, the disposition that tempers justice "'and induces an injured person "'to forgive trespasses and injuries "'and to forbear punishment "'or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. "'In this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language "'precisely synonymous with mercy. "'That which comes nearest to it is grace. "'It implies benevolence, tenderness, mildness, "'pity or compassion and clemency, "'but exercised only towards offenders. "'Mercy is a distinguishing attribute.' of the supreme being. Love triumphs over partiality, and God says mercy triumphs over ju- judgment. I mean, how could anyone be saved or forgiven if the opposite was true, if judgment triumphed over mercy? Since God, it's, it's so cool. We shouldn't look at this like, well, I want mercy from God, so I'm going to be merciful to others. More than that, it's because God has been merciful to us and is always merciful to us and will be merciful to us. We ought to be merciful to all, all the time because God is merciful. It's not like, I just want God to be merciful on judgment day. Well, no, God has been merciful already to give you the opportunity for forgiveness and salvation and everything that you possess and everything you know, it's because of his grace. It's because of his love for you. We love to receive mercy. Do you love to be merciful? Micah 6.8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And to do any of these three things well, we have to have them all. We can't just have one of them. Justice without mercy is harsh, Mercy cannot exist without humility and faith, and without fellowship with God, we remain ignorant in our folly. James introduced himself in the beginning of this letter as a servant, a loss, a, a bond slave of God, and we see a great exhortation to servants in Colossians 3.22. If you'll turn there, Colossians 3, verse 22 through 25. So it's the same word used here. It reads, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. If we seek to please men, inevitably we will show partiality. But when we are obedient to God as his servants by faith in him, we can do justly, we can love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We have this eternal reward and inheritance from him that we are to celebrate because we have him, and he has us and delights in us, and showing mercy with all our might. It's like, you know, do it with all your might. Well, show mercy heartily as unto the Lord. He doesn't need or can even, it doesn't make sense that we would be showing him mercy. It's the offender who receives mercy. So yes, you have been offended. You have been hurt. We cannot show mercy to God, but he's shown it to us. And so we ought to show mercy to one another. We're to judge with righteous judgment, knowing that mercy triumphs over judgment. God has not and will not show partiality to us and we should not show partiality to others. Praise God for his mercy. Let's love mercy. Let's exercise it towards others by the grace of God and walk in his liberty and love. Mercy triumphing over judgment. Praise the Lord for his grace to us all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you that you have treated us so kindly when we were deserving of destruction and being cut off from you without hope. And thank you, Lord, for those examples in Scripture of how you broke down the walls of error and the partiality, even in the apostles, where they were partial to one group over another and and how we too need to change, that you want us to be more like you, to not show partiality, to use righteous judgment, to judge ourselves lest we be judged um, with that same harsh harshness, that is tendent, that is our tendency, that is my tendency. And thank you, Lord, for your just your goodness in all things. That you have been faithful. That you—it's not just that you will be merciful; you are merciful, and your mercies are new every morning. For great is your faithfulness, Lord. We love you, and thank you that you are King. That we can do all things as unto you, and we can do it heartily. with all our might. And I pray that you you would quicken us, Lord. You would give us insight into our own hearts to see our need to change and to rely upon you to change us as we follow you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.